0: You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. All right. If you want to send your kids uh, up to second grade uh, to one of the classes, you can do that now. If you want to keep them with you, too, that's totally fine. They're welcome to stay here. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 27 uh, if you're new with us today, uh, just to introduce myself so that you know who's talking to you, uh, my name's Patrick, I'm one of the elders here, and uh, we've been going through this series in Genesis, and um, actually it's been all year so far uh, to get us about halfway through, and we find ourselves here in chapter 27, so uh, we have uh, worked all the way from creation um, our creator, God, sovereign over all things, over the universe that he made, introducing uh, creation, uh, man and woman as humanity to live in the earth, to uh, rule over it, to, uh, to tend to it and be fruitful and multiply as husband and wife, uh, but... Uh, that man and woman rebelling against God introduced sin into the creation, and sin had a devastating effect of bringing death, not only physical but spiritual death, into the world. And Adam and Eve did die a spiritual death, but God has made provision always that those who trust in Him uh, through faith will be made righteous and will have eternal life. And so, Of course, the ultimate provision that we have experienced is Christ coming to give his life for us. But here in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, these people are only hearing of these promises from far off. They haven't greeted them face to face in the way we've been able to. We who are in Christ and have received that promise in Christ of eternal life uh, by grace through faith in him. They're only greeting these things from afar, the Bible says. And so we find ourselves here after Adam and Eve, uh, after Noah and his family survived the flood uh, by God's hand, and and kind of God hitting the reset button with humanity again, uh, and Noah and his family uh, living in the earth and multiplying and, uh, and then we see these, this unique family line that comes from Noah. And uh, as a great, 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 that wasn't technical, that was just a lot of greats. Uh, grandson, we have Abraham. And Abraham, of course, has this miraculous uh, son born to him in his old age. He was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born and the name Isaac means laughter because they both laughed at the prospect that God was going to give them a son in such old age, but then God, as God always has and did and always will, uh, he kept his promise and he gave them this son. And Isaac uh, grew up uh, at about 40 years old, I think actually was 40 years old when he took a wife, Rebecca, and they had two sons, Jacob and Esau, twin boys, uh, but they, uh, they were very different from one another. Even as twins, they really hardly shared a, a trait. And uh, Esau was this very rugged outdoorsman. He was a hunter. He was hairy. His skin was red. He just probably always looked angry. I don't know if I had to guess. And Isaac preferred Esau because he, uh, the Bible says, this isn't just me guessing at it or something, the Bible says... Uh, literally, which if I can just stop for a minute and give some pastoral counsel on the use of the word literally. Can you imagine if literally, every time you said something literally happened to you, how literally horrible that would be? What you mean is figuratively, not just going with the Lord. All right. But literally, the Bible says that Isaac preferred Esau because he loved to eat the dead animals that Esau uh, killed and cooked for him. And that's really all we get as far as the reason why Isaac loved Esau so much. It was just because he loved to eat the the food that Esau cooked. But on the other hand, Rebekah loved Jacob and preferred him, but Jacob was what we called last week indoorsy. He was a gentle man, not a gentleman, but a gentle man. The, the Bible says he dwelled in tents. He was just he was just a softer man, a softer spoken man. And and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's not it didn't lack masculinity in that way. He was just a different kind of man than Esau. And they, they clashed at all times in how different they were from one another. And leading up to our chapter 27, we have uh, uh, this account of, in chapter 25, Esau selling his birthright because Esau came out of the womb first. He was the firstborn by technicality. And Jacob, clinging to his heel, uh, came out second as the secondborn. But a time when Esau, as a man who was uh, flippant and undisciplined, came in from hunting, was very hungry and thirsty, and was begging Jacob to make him some food. Uh, in fact, Jacob had already made the food, but I guess Esau was feeling so exhausted he couldn't get a bowl of soup for himself, so he cried out to Jacob to give him some food. Jacob, being a wily man and and a deceptive man, uh, in fact, his, his name means to cling to the heel, which is a... a kind of a turn of phrase that in that time meant to deceive. So he is a deceiver even by name. He told him, I'll give it to you if you sell your birthright to me as the firstborn. And of course Esau, being a foolish man, said, what use is my birthright to me? I'm about to die. So Jacob made him swear. And so Esau sold his birthright as the firstborn for a bowl of lintel stew and some bread. Then we have, in uh, Genesis 26, God making these promises to Isaac, the same promises that he made to his father Abraham, that he was going to multiply him as a nation and that the earth would be blessed by his descendants, by his offspring. Then here in 27, uh, we kind of have hit the fast-forward button. The writer of Genesis, Moses, has hit the fast-forward, and we meet up here with Isaac as a very old man. Let's read the chapter together, and then just as we always do, we'll stop and pray for some help. So I'll read out loud if you'd follow along. Genesis 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see... He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die." Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. "'Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me.' So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious foods such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob." So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, and the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac's father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting, He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times he took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers, and I have given to him, I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob, Because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Let's pray. Lord, as we read this word, it's hard not to just be really aware of how broken and messy and sinful and foolish human beings are. And we know that we're no exception, Lord. Even in seeking to benefit from you, we seek it in sinful ways. Lord, please help us this morning. Holy Spirit, will you please move in power on your people? Would you please enlighten the eyes of our hearts, open the ears of our hearts. Help us to not just know what your word says, but to understand it and believe it. And embrace its truth and its application to us. What we're asking, Lord, in all these things is that you would, by your spirit, by an act of grace to us, you would transform us into the image of Christ. That we would have his character more so than we did when we arrived here this morning. And that you'd be glorified and honored and pleased by this. And we could have joy in following you wholeheartedly. We ask for all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, what a mess, right? Talk about a dysfunctional family. This is like nasty. It's nasty, and uh, maybe you grew up in a family that you know was. Very peaceful and very loving, and and that's a gift. I mean, that's that's really you. You learn more from that than you do by growing up in a family that's really broken and filled with sin and feuding. Uh, but maybe you grew up with, in a family that was filled with sin and feuding and strife and lack of peace, and so you recognize this kind of thing. Maybe you identify well. With that, and it's easy for you—easier, maybe, emotionally—to understand how it would feel to be a part of this kind of trauma as a family, and uh, and to want good things, but find yourself always in this battle to try to experience anything good, rather than just feeling that good things are a part of your family, but rather you have to kind of seek it, strive for it, scratch and claw for it, as these people seem to feel. We can't forget that these people, Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, Jacob, all of these people, these very real human beings, historical figures that we're reading about here, they were actually among the chosen people of God. They were sons of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, were grandsons of Abraham, his descendants. And yet, there's something in the heart that when the heart is in a wrong place, it reveals uh, something of your character, reveals something of God's plans for you, and we see here that Jacob and Esau were on different tracts. And again, just as we can read from Romans 9 and, and some other places, it, it really had nothing to do with the personal character, the innate qualities Of Jacob and Esau that had them on these different tracks. It was just the hand of God for his own purposes. I mean, if you were going to pick out a villain among Jacob and Esau from this passage alone, who would you call the villain? You would definitely call Jacob the bad guy. He's a liar, a deceiver. And Esau just seems here to be afflicted, to be wounded, to be sinned against. And yet we find that it was Jacob That God was going to continue this unique family line through to make a multitude, a nation so great that would be blessings to every nation of the earth, so great that they couldn't be counted like the stars of the heavens or like the sand on the seashore. Why Jacob? Why not Esau? Don't they seem just equally as bad? Maybe Jacob even worse? Uh, I mean, Esau, just in a natural sense, at least just seems like kind of an idiot, doesn't he? Just kind of a big galoot. He's not really out to hurt anybody. He's just, he's just kind of a moron. But then Jacob, there's something different about him. There's something, there's like an awareness and a, a kind of an evil nature in him that's so deceptive. It's just, it's hard not to see them as uh, like Jacob being worse than Esau and to not be able to grasp, you know, why? Why would Jacob be chosen? But we're going to get to that point. Uh, We've been there before in Genesis, and, and we're going to continue seeing God using despicable people, choosing the worst, choosing the scoundrels, choosing the outcasts as the ones that he's going to demonstrate his glory to the world through. So, for this first part of the sermon, I'm just kind of, I almost titled the whole sermon this, which I know titles don't mean anything to you, but they help me to kind of bring together what the big picture of the passage is. This is the big idea, and I almost called the whole sermon this, but I'll just call the first part a bunch of bad examples. A bunch of bad examples. So here we have, let's take them one at a time, we have Esau. And Esau, I know just from Genesis 27, we we may not see anything here that looks outright sinful, but if we took a bigger picture of him, some stuff from Genesis 25 and some stuff from Hebrews chapter 12, you would actually see Esau in a different light. Uh, Hebrews 11, uh, sorry, Hebrews 12 verse 16 calls him directly, calls Esau sexually immoral and unholy sexually immoral and unholy you see at the end of our genesis 27 passage rebecca is lamenting over the hittite women it was hittite women that esau was taking as his wives they were ungodly they were not from among the people of god they were people of foreign nations they were philistines they were hittites and so rebecca is lamenting these hittite women because esau has taken them into the home and they've made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah both. And Esau was a man who, according to the Scriptures, was sexually immoral and unholy. Taking these wives and and living with them as wives, apparently, before they were even made his wives. So we know at, at the least he was sexually immoral and unholy. But then we also can derive from the Scriptures after selling his birthright for a single meal, that Esau was a man who was very foolish and flippant and nearsighted. He was very fleshly. He, he wasn't able to overcome the flesh to see the bigger picture. So in a moment of hunger and exhaustion, he'll sell his birthright for a single meal. So we know that he was a nearsighted man. He didn't have an eternal mindset, and he didn't understand the things God, the greater purposes of God. Then we even see here in the end of the passage, after he has been sinned against, and he was, we see that Esau hated Jacob and planned to murder him. Which, if you take the teaching of Jesus, and you have to, Jesus says that Esau already committed murder in his heart. In his heart, he killed his brother unjustly, seeking to get recompense for the sin against him. So we have Esau then as a sexually immoral, unholy, foolish, flippant, nearsighted, hateful murderer. Not a good dude. Not a bright spot in this family. Then we have Rebecca. Of course, Rebecca, their mother, concocted this whole deception against her blind old husband. I mean, it's like stereotypically bad. You can't hurt blind people. But here she is, spying, eavesdropping outside of the tent and listening and then forming this whole plan to steal the blessing of the firstborn from Esau. Because remember, she preferred Jacob. Which really that demonstrates, if we're looking into Rebekah's heart, it demonstrates that she lacked faith in God. By thinking that she needed to help God accomplish his will, even if it meant through sinful means. That's what's in the heart of Rebecca here. She knew God had said to her that the older was going to serve the younger. So she always knew, and I think treasured it in her heart, that Jacob was going to be the one who was chosen by God. But this is how you think God's going to accomplish it? Through your sin? That God needs you to do this? Not only that, but she tempted Jacob by inviting him and even talking him into this sin. And again, if we're looking at the heart, we see the teaching of Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him that a millstone be tied around his neck and he be thrown into the sea. Jesus takes it very seriously for us to tempt people to sin, and she, I mean, guilty. Guilty is charged, Rebecca. So, again, not a bright spot in this family. She's not helping things along here. Then take Jacob. You may sympathize with Jacob a little bit here, being the younger son, his mother coming to him, and she's very forceful with him, isn't she? Now, obey my voice as I command you. And in an ancient culture like that, you could imagine parental authority and this younger son, how difficult it would be for him to resist what his mother is saying to him. But if you think he's reluctant about joining in on this plan, you've actually missed it. Notice what he says here. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, this is verse 11, "'Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man.'" Which is just funny for someone to say. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Where's the reluctance coming from? Is it like, Mom, I don't know, that seems wrong. I don't know if we should treat dad that way. I don't know, he's my older brother and he's the firstborn. I just feel like integrity demands that I not join in this plan. No, he says, What if I get caught? We've all been in that space where we got caught doing something. We said we were sorry, but what were you really sorry for? Sorry for getting caught. Sorry for getting caught. So don't mistake his reluctance for integrity. He is self-seeking. In fact, you can say even from this, I, I believe you could say, Jacob loved the darkness. He dwelled in darkness. That's what deception is. That's what lying is. All the time in the Scriptures, truth is, is compared to light. That's why we say we, we ask God to enlighten us. It's bringing truth, revealing truth. But Jacob wasn't about truth. He didn't value truth. He loved darkness. He deceived his blind father with this ridiculous performance covered in goat skins. Can you imagine? Just stop with me for a moment and imagine this man putting on his brother's clothes and then somehow his mother putting over his neck and his arms and his hands goat skins. I don't even know how that happened. Like I imagine modern day there'd be a bunch of like Duct tape around the elbow and stuff like that, and like folded over tape under each finger. I don't know how they even manage this, but somehow he goes in there, covered in these goat skins, and he's like, "My father!" You know, can't you imagine how ridiculous the scene is? And here he is trying to deceive his blind father. This elaborate scheme to steal—not just a thing, not just steal something but to steal a blessing, a spiritual blessing. So he's not just a thief, he's a spiritual thief. And did you notice when uh, Isaac said, how did you find this food so fast and prepare it so fast? He said, because the Lord your God helped me. Now he's making God an accomplice. In this deception, he cheated his brother out of this blessing of the firstborn, not only sinned against Isaac, but against Esau too, his own twin brother. It shows that his conscience was really twisted and dark. He felt no fear. He just wanted what he wanted, and he did what it took to get it. Then you have Isaac. Isaac. And now Isaac is in a slightly different position here because he's very old and very blind and maybe a little hard of hearing, I'm guessing, because he's like, I don't think that's Esau's voice, but everything lines up, so maybe he just didn't trust his hearing well. But if you think Isaac is just some kind of innocent victim in all of this too, dig a little deeper. We already know, like I said, that Isaac preferred Esau over Jacob because he liked meat, Just let that marinade, if you will. <laughs> huh? Don't groan at me. <laughs> Honestly, you prefer him. To, but the only reason the whole Bible gives is that he liked Esau because of his meat. You go kill stuff, cook it, and and I eat it and I like it. Therefore I love you more. That's so shallow. That's so shallow. And we have this long gap between chapter 26 and chapter 27 and we don't know what all transpired during that time but Isaac doesn't seem to be in a super spiritual place here. It's a very sensual thing being more attentive to physical pleasures than to holiness. And don't forget that Jacob knew that or sorry Isaac knew that God had spoken to Rebekah that the older would serve the younger. This had been revealed to him, that this was the will of God, that the older will serve the younger. So then why is he working against the revealed will of God to continue pursuing this blessing for Esau? Why is he always trying to exalt Esau? It's a heart of disobedience and unsubmissiveness until finally he came to his senses, verses 33 through 37, you see a change of heart in him. That's why Hebrews 11:20 20 says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. You can say it's by faith that he did that, not when he gave this blessing to someone he thought was Esau, but it was by faith that he repented in his heart. He came to his senses and he realized later on and he said, and he shall be blessed, speaking of Jacob. I think there was a flood of realization of what God was doing in that moment and Isaac had his spiritual eyes opened. So this entire scene shows that this family was walking in spiritual darkness. That's, that's the scene here, and I, th- I think you can feel that. There's no one here who's walking with any kind of integrity. There's no one here who's valuing God and his glory above all else. God's been gracious to them, he's blessed them, provided for them, protected them, loved them, but all of their actions and attitudes show obvious ingratitude. Now, that's kind of down here in the mud with them, in this fight, this family feud that we've experienced in chapter 27. But if I can take you back up to that kind of 30,000-foot level of Genesis and of the whole Bible, let's remember that there's something much bigger going on here than just a family feud over lands and servants. It's not just about which son was going to get the bulk of the inheritance or which son was going to be preferred by his parents. They're fighting over glory. They're fighting over glory. Isaac and Esau want glory for Esau. Rebecca and Jacob want glory for Jacob. The birthright, the blessing, the inheritance, the legacy. But there is a silent player in this passage. There's a silent player, and to him belongs all glory. And I know as we just read it, there's hardly mention of him, except for people uh, mentioning him in passing, mentioning him as as someone who's not in the room, or even lying about him being complicit in the deception. These are the ways God's brought into the scene here in chapter 27, but we can't see God as absent because he absolutely wasn't. Remember that the blessing Jacob and Esau were seeking was not rooted in Isaac. Isaac was asking God to give a blessing to his son. Blessings are rooted in God, not in people. This is something that just in the flesh, we find ourselves on the wrong side of all the time. We're trying to find our blessings in some person instead of looking to God to supply all of our needs and bless us with a blessing that is a blessing according to his definition. That's a hard place to get to. That's a place that's only spiritual. And your flesh won't help you get to that place at all. To seek God only. So remember, it's not Isaac that they're really seeking these blessings from. They were asking Isaac to become this kind of representative that he would go to God as an ambassador and ask God to bless them. And they believed that this would happen. But doesn't that almost make God just this mythical, kind of mystical figure in the sky for them? They just want something from him. They're not really seeking his face. They're not cherishing his character, knowing him as he really is. They just want something from him and they're coming to Isaac, hoping that Isaac can get it for them. And God, watching all of this unfold, imagine his perspective. These are his people. These are his people. And and if I can just kind of cast your vision to the future from their perspective, standing and looking out over thousands of years of what we now call history and seeing that it was through Jacob and then his 12 sons that became the nation of Israel. And then from the nation of Israel, one offspring who was promised from the very beginning, even in Genesis chapter 3, and then to Abraham and then to Isaac, who would be a descendant of Jacob, that this one offspring would be bringing redemption through his own death and resurrection, redemption not only to the nation of Israel, but even to the whole world, so that the promise that the offspring would bless every nation would be fulfilled. God, with all of this gospel goodness and richness and blessing in his heart for humanity, is looking down and thinking, these are my people. This is who I've chosen. Now, what we don't want to do here is attribute to God some kind of uncertainty. Like he's looking down the way we would look down. Because honestly, be real, if you were looking down at this point, you'd be like, I'm not blessing any of these fools. They're all reprobate, ungrateful idiots, and they can have whatever I've given them so far and be on their own. I'm done. But God is not like us. In Genesis chapter twenty-seven, God was not outside of the tent like Rebecca, just like oh no, don't, oh my, and then listening to Rebecca and Jacob scheming. Oh no, what am I? Oh gosh, Esau's out in the field, just oblivious, coming back. Father, who are you? And and here's God. The whole time, he's not going. What? What's happening? What do I do with these people? I've made some mistake by choosing them. No, this is all happening under the watchful, sovereignly gracious care of God. Now, I'm choosing my words very specifically and very carefully to tell you that God is sovereignly gracious. Sovereignly gracious. And in a place like Je- Genesis chapter 27, it's so obvious, we have to talk about it. God is sovereignly gracious gracious, the true and living God, the God who actually is, the God who exists, who created all that does exist, who made you and me and put us here in this earth, the real true God. How is he gracious? He's gracious in that he's willing to give good gifts to undeserving sinners. This is how he's gracious. He's willing to give good gifts to undeserving sinners. Now, if we're going to categorize ourselves here, we have to categorize ourselves with Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau as undeserving sinners who've received a lot of good gifts from a gracious God. Amen? We have to. And even if you're unwilling to, it doesn't matter because the Bible says God gives good things. He gives grace to the Righteous and to the wicked, he makes it rain on all the earth, those who know of his grace and those who don't. So even if you don't realize God has been abundantly gracious to you, it doesn't change that he has. And this is where we come to the point of his sovereign grace. He's not only gracious, he is sovereignly Gracious, Which means this, how is he sovereign in his grace? He's perfectly just in deciding who he will give his grace to. He's not only gracious, he is also perfectly just in deciding who will receive his grace. Because some will and some won't. Now, I'm not speaking of that kind of general grace that all humanity has received just by existing just by having life, just by taking a breath of God's oxygen. But that specific grace, is God being for you when you don't deserve it. God loving you. God caring for you. He is sovereignly gracious. Now at this point, I know some questions come up in our hearts. Maybe some of you have already kind of resolved this and maybe some of you haven't, but when we see God sovereignly gracious, we see these people who are all messed up, who are all sinning against one another, and sinning against God, and even dragging God's name into their own mud pit, which is really just disgusting, and I think the worst part of this whole passage But we see God choosing the one who seems to be the worst in all of it and magnifying himself and glorifying himself through this one, through this one. It somehow seems scandalous. It somehow seems improper to us. It's hard for us to grasp Why would God do such a thing? Why would He choose and be sovereignly just and giving His grace to one and not to the other? First of all, we have to remember that they were all undeserving. And if they're all undeserving for one to receive grace, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a good thing for someone to receive something that they didn't deserve. The only way you think that's a bad thing is if you think you deserved it and didn't get it. That's the only way you think God's grace is wrong. If you think you deserve this, and they don't, but they got it and you didn't. But instead, we have to remember, like we've been trying to do, we are all Jacob. All of us who are in Christ, all of us who believe in Jesus and have put our hope in Him, Because of God's grace to us and our faith in Christ, we have been made a chosen people. People set apart by God for his name's sake. He chooses to reveal himself to the world through us, through Christians. Does it have anything to do with our own personal merit? No. Did we bring some kind of goodness, some glory to the table that we're allowing God to share in? No. All the glory is his. All the goodness is his. We are scoundrels, liars, thieves. Even if you've never taken something off the shelf and left without paying for it, you're still a thief of God's glory every day by exalting your own self above him. Every time you want something God doesn't want, you're a thief of his glory. And we are all like Jacob, the scoundrel who received good gifts from a sovereignly gracious God. Now, when we realize that God is sovereignly gracious, that this family is very messed up, that it was through very strange, ungodly, and unrighteous means that God's will was actually accomplished, doesn't that introduce kind of a a thorn in your brain? We know God is sovereign. He's going to get what he wants. He's going to have his will, his plans accomplished. And here's Rebecca, like we said it, Rebecca in her heart wanted to help God accomplish his revealed will by doing something sinful. And we know that's wrong. That doesn't agree. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't even need us righteously trying to help him, much less our sinful help. But how did Jacob receive the blessing, the blessing from God that Isaac couldn't give, only God could give? How did he receive it? God gave it to him at this moment. Even in the midst of all this deception, all this wickedness, waywardness and ingratitude and self-seeking and glory-stealing, even in the midst of all of it, what did God do? God did what God wanted to do. Now, could it have happened some other way? Sure, I guess. But this is how it happened. This is the reality. God was going to bless Jacob. He had already promised that the older was going to serve the younger. So it was predetermined. But then it came to being through this mess. Now, at this point... I want to say to you, I realize that in your life, there have been a lot of really messed up things that you wish hadn't happened, a lot of really painful things. You have committed some sins, and people have sinned against you and people you love, and those sins were wrong. They were bad. They were categorically bad. There's nothing good about them. And you can't see by getting into this mysterious relationship between human sinfulness and God sovereignly accomplishing His will crashing together in Genesis 27. That, oh, okay, so that means that God is ordaining sin in order to accomplish His will. No, do not go there. Do not go to that place. He is perfectly just. Perfectly holy, always right, always good. He never condones sin. So in Genesis chapter 27, when they all sin and what God wanted ended up being the result, what you have to call that is grace. That is the grace that was given here. God was gracious in continuing to seek His glory through Jacob, even though Jacob was a reprobate sinner. Even though he was seeking the blessing through sinful means, God still gave it to him because the purpose was rooted in God, not in Jacob. God unfolding the gospel for humanity that we could be cleansed of our sin and made righteous in His sight to become His children is not something that He's looking to us to accomplish. He's not looking to us to be good enough to be smart enough, to be aware enough, to be strong enough. He's looking to himself. So what you see here is a bunch of people scrambling and scrounging to try to get something from God when God had already said he was going to give it to them. He already said it. And so he gave it of his own accord for his own purposes to glorify himself. And that is completely detached from the purposes in their heart. They thought they were seeking something for themselves. God was seeking something for his own glory, as he has to do, otherwise he becomes an idolater, which is impossible. So then, how do we, Christ followers, who have the Spirit of Christ inside of us, who's teaching us and keeping us, leading us in Christ-likeness, Sealing us for the day when Jesus returns. How do we, Christ followers, respond to this mystery of God's sovereign grace? All the chaos that's happening around us and God working in the midst of it, even willing to to say, okay, this is the mess you've created. I'll deal with that mess. I'll still get my glory and accomplish my purposes even in the midst of your mess how do we navigate this i want to take you to first timothy chapter 6 first timothy chapter 6 and it'll probably end up on the screen but just as always i think it's a good practice to turn to it in your own bible first timothy chapter 6 we're going to pick it up at verse 11 now this is Paul speaking to Timothy and he's trying to encourage him in growing in Christ likeness and living in this world that's full of corruption and sin and all these kinds of messy scenes like we find in Genesis 27 a bunch of bad examples. He's trying to encourage Timothy about godliness. Starting in verse 11 he says, "But as for you, O man of God." Now When you see that, that means he's speaking to a Christian, a person who loves Jesus and is filled with the Spirit. And if you are a person who loves Jesus and is filled with his Spirit, you can learn a lot from what he's about to say to Timothy. He says, flee these things, these sinful things he had just named. He says instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, this is the charge, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means walk in obedience. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen, he says. Can you join him in an amen? Amen. This is the God that we serve and that we're called to walk humbly with and to obey. A God who is the eternal, blessed, only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords. You see what he says there right before he bursts out with his amen, his so be it, his let it be so. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Dominion means rulership. Ownership, authority, eternally, God possesses those things. He gives grace to whom he'll give grace, and he'll do it justly. He'll do it with eternal dominion. And our calling in the midst of this Surrounded by a Genesis 27 kind of scene every day, all the brokenness and sinfulness and chaos and disorder, all of it, even some of it caused by us. Let's be honest. Much of the trauma that we face in our own lives is because of us. I know that I'm my worst enemy when it comes to godliness, when it comes to joy, when it comes to peace. It's my own lack of belief that leads me to sin. Like James says, these sinful desires arise from inside of me, tempting me. We're our own worst enemies. But in the midst of all this chaos, even the chaos that's created by us, like a Genesis 27 scene, God is sovereignly gracious in the midst of it to his people, the ones he's chosen Christians, Christians. Let me give some truths to you. Sin is going to be a part of this story until Jesus returns. That's a truth. It's been here since Genesis chapter 3. It brought along curse and pain and death with it when it entered this world, and we're still experiencing curse and death and pain. And it's going to be that way until Jesus returns. But in Revelation 21.5, Jesus says that he's making all things new. When he comes back, there'll be no more sin. At that time, it will cease to be part of the story another truth that i want to offer to you god is not responsible for sin he's holy so as much as you might struggle in this mystery this sinfulness around you but yet god's still sovereignly working out his plans and we say these things independently of each other all the time how often do we come to the grips come to grips with the fact that they're happening simultaneously How many times do you praise God for His grace, forgetting that it's grace over your own sin that's created this mess? And how many times do you lament sin and brokenness and pain and failure and lack in this world and yet forget that it's God's grace that you even have the voice to complain we have to see these things in this mysterious coexistence with one another, and yet God is not responsible for sin. James chapter 1, he says it very clearly God cannot be tempted, and he tempts no one. He is not responsible for sin, he is holy. Let his holiness be holy to you, let it be set apart and untouchable an unchangeable truth in your hearts. He is always holy, no matter what your experience tries to tell you. Another truth that I want to offer to you from our First Timothy passage, we are called to obedience and to holiness, to honor our sovereignly gracious God, who in his eternal dominion, has chosen to send Jesus to die for us so that we could be transformed from children children of his wrath to children of his mercy. We are called to obedience and holiness in a response to God's grace. We're going to see Jacob live on from Genesis chapter 27. He thought that he was very tricky He thought that he had won on this day when he went sneaking out of the tent just before Esau came in. He thought that he had won a real victory for himself, but actually there was a victory, but it was a victory granted to him as a gift, something God was doing in spite of his sinfulness. But just like all of us, we begin in a place, chosen by God, but immature, unknowing, ignorant, And foolish, deceptive, sinful in various ways, but God is committed to our growth. He's committed to our growth. Just the same thing that Timothy heard from Paul. I want you to hear this morning. Flee the things from your past, the things that you were seeking, the things you were pursuing, and rather now pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith because Christ died for you to create the possibility that you would be a godly person a godly person who is receiving mercy from God and living in a way that honors and treasures and magnifies that mercy so that others could see it and praise God. So we charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of Jesus who will return to keep these commandments unstained and free from reproach until Jesus returns. And in that day, we will be face to face with the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.